the best argument I can make to those people, and I'm probably closer to that on the spectrum of the Democratic Party than I am to Joe Biden, is that Joe Biden is precisely because he's always at the center where the party is. You guys have moved the party so far to the left that Joe Biden is more running on a much more progressive platform than Barack Obama did in 2008. So, so take your success. Like, you know, you, you guys have won a lot of these fights and he will have to govern in a way that is responsive to that. And you have, will have more influence if you're trying to change the Democratic Party than you will if you're trying to burn it down. For eight years, between 2009 and 2017, Ben Rhodes served as Deputy National Security Advisor to Barack Obama. In that time, ideas of national security changed in tangible ways in the United States, that tone having been set in the aftermath of the terrorist attacks in the US on September the 11th, 2001, which took the US to war in Afghanistan and in Iraq. During his tenure in the role, Rhodes was in the room during some of the key moments of the Obama presidency. The attempts at dialogue with Iran, the normalization of relations with Cuba, the signing of the Paris Climate Accord, the killing by US Navy SEALs of Osama bin Laden, and the successful attempts to curb the Ebola and Zika outbreaks on US soil. Ben Rhodes began his work with Obama as a speechwriter on the then-Senator's 2008 presidential campaign, and he has, over the years, recounted many of those chapters of a storied political career as a writer, a podcaster, and political commentator. His new podcast, Missing America, aims to highlight and suggest remedies for some of the effects of Donald Trump's first term in office. I'm Thomas Lewis, and for the first episode of a special series on the US presidential election, I sat down with Ben Rhodes for the big interview. Ben Rhodes, a very warm welcome to The Big Interview. Just to begin on a a fairly broad brush question, Ben, we are very close to election day. If you had to characterise the sort of state of the race or the tone of the race right now at the moment so far, how would you describe it? Well, I'd characterise the state of the race as totally unlike any election I've been involved in in my life in the sense that Joe Biden is quite comfortably ahead If you look at the public opinion surveys, he has bigger leads than Obama had in 2008 when we ended up winning in a landslide. However, nobody is confident that it's possible to have a free and fair election in the United States in 2020 governed by Donald Trump. And so it's an election where, frankly, the biggest challenge to a Biden victory may just be whether it's at all possible to 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 have a free and fair election. Um, and that is a new element. I'm, I'm aware of many friends in other countries who have to deal with that come election time, but that's a new uh, phenomenon here in America. And it seems as though there is, I feel as though activism in the United States, of course, also has a different tone to it this year as well, given all of the upheavals that are still ongoing in the US. I've spoken to a few activists who've talked about the ways that they're pushing back and trying to hold people to account to ensure that the systems are in place and are rigorous enough to ensure the election is is free and fair. Are you confident that that is enough? The challenge in the United States with an election in particular is that the election system is set up in an incredibly decentralized way. So it's not one election, it's 50 state elections. And then even in states, you know, they're all manner of more local election entities. And the Republican Party for a very long time has figured out how to hack that 
apparatus. I mean, the Jim Crow laws hacked it, you know, to basically dig, dig into places where Republicans have any degree of power to prevent black people from voting, prevent marginalized communities from voting, make it far easier for some people to vote than others. Now we see the obvious efforts to tamper with or delegitimize mail-in voting, which is very normal in the United States until now. So the problem for activism is no matter how hard you try, you know, you can't plug every hole, you know, you have to replicate that degree of activism in every state, in every county, in every city. And so there's always just that fear that where might there be a blind spot? And if that is in an important state, you know, that can make the difference, right? And so, yes, there's a higher degree of activism than I've seen before, but there's still a sense of, you know, panic that that it might not be enough. And what's your assessment of Joe Biden's campaign so far? It's been a presidential campaign that no other candidate in political history in the US has had to run, given the circumstances of this year. What do you make of how that campaign's been run? And do you think it's an effective one in these final weeks before Election Day? Look, it was always an unusual campaign. I mean, it was unusual that that he went from way behind to essentially locking up the Democratic nomination in a couple of weeks because people just kind of decided, like, we cannot afford to take any chances in this election with a younger person or a more socialist person like Bernie. Like, this idea that Biden as an experienced, well-liked, decent guy that everybody knows and is comfortable with, that that, that was kind of the rationale that led him to coalesce support because in an age of Trump, people felt that you couldn't take a risk. That same ethos is carried into the campaign through COVID, which is he should just demonstrate his competence, his decency, the fact that he'll hire the right people, the fact that he'll kind of try to detoxify the American presidency and send that message in his kind of daily appearances. And and, and that's sufficient. And insofar as it becomes a referendum on Trump, that that's an advantage for Democrats. Trump will want to make it a referendum on Biden, as he did with Hillary. And Biden is, is not giving him the ammunition to do that. I think the one challenge in here when he has to close the deal is making more of a case about why him and what he's going to do, rather than just kind of drafting off the outrages of Trump, you know, and what he would do for an economy in the United States that has been battered by COVID but already had inequities in it, what he would do to mobilize voting constituencies who care about things like climate change, you know. And uh, he's beginning to do that, but I think he'll need to do more of that uh, to close the deal here because people know intuitively that they should vote against Trump. But I think in order to risk losing them at the last minute, you also have to make sure that they feel like they know why they're voting for Joe Biden. I've spoken to a few uh, during the process and at the start of the primary process to uh, some people who were supporting Bernie Sanders, some who were supporting Elizabeth Warren. And I've spoken to some of them sort of fairly recently who seem to be still fairly suspicious of Joe Biden. Some of them, some of them have said that, well, I can't possibly vote for Joe Biden, uh, which is sort of as an outsider to the process has struck me as kind of quite surprising and maybe shocking to a certain degree. As the narrative goes, that seems to what happened in some part to Hillary Clinton last time around. Is that something you're hearing? Is that something that you think might be a risk? Or is there a sense that there is a galvanising of like, well, Joe Biden might not be our preferred candidate, but we just have to vote for him? Yeah, not as much as last time. I mean, I think, you know, there was an underestimation at the degree of antipathy that, that a lot of people felt for the Clintons. And... I always felt like after the election, like uh, I should have seen that coming more because 
in 2008, we ran an outsider campaign against Hillary Clinton and, and won, tapping into a lot of the same frustration that the Clintons kind of represented a certain kind of corruption. And they kind of represented what had gone wrong with globalization, you know, that it became a, a kind of Davos club, that it became the same people in the same positions of power. That anger was very acute at the Clintons in, in America. And some of it's not their fault. Some of it's, you know, decades of right-wing attacks. Some of it is just how much time they were in the world stage, and some of it was self-inflicted. Joe Biden just isn't that guy. He's been around Washington forever, so yeah, you can say he's a political establishment guy. But I don't think he occupies in the American mind, you know, the same sense of someone who hobnobbed in Davos and got distant from the people. You know, that's not his public image. And so I think he's just a harder target with a broad audience to, to paint as, as, a, as the kind of manifestation of you know, to give the left-wing perspective, you know, the neoliberal project that failed after the Cold War, right? That said, you know, Joe Biden has always been in the middle of the Democratic Party, a centrist, not in American politics, but a centrist in the party itself, you know? And so that makes him inherently a figure of distrust to people who might have supported Bernie and Elizabeth. And the best argument I can make to those people, and I'm probably closer to them on the spectrum of the Democratic Party than I am to Joe Biden, is that Joe Biden is precisely because he's always at the center where the party is. You guys have moved the party so far to the left that Joe Biden is more running on a much more progressive platform than Barack Obama did in 2008. So take your success. Like, you know, you guys have won a lot of these fights and he will have to govern in a way that is responsive of that. And you have, will have more influence if you're trying to change the Democratic Party than you will if you're trying to burn it down. It strikes me as interesting that, you know, the way healthcare, for example, is now discussed, you know, it seems almost single-handedly that Bernie Sanders changed a lot of the tone of that debate. But, you know, you look at polling on how a big swathe of Americans across the spectrum think about healthcare and what healthcare should be in the United States. That does seem, like you say, like a remarkable achievement to me, but it still sometimes, maybe to some quarters, doesn't seem like enough. I'm curious about why maybe you think that whether it's an anger and what that anger can produce, I guess, even if the achievements are being made. I think what Bernie realized, you know, Obama, when he pushed for just having a, a public option, so for those not intimately familiar with the American healthcare system, just the capacity for somebody to choose to be covered by essentially Medicare, that that was called socialism. And that was ultimately, we couldn't get that into our healthcare law. And that prevented us from covering, I think, an additional number of people. What Bernie realized is, you know, redefine what the middle of this debate is. And by just being completely relentless and unabashed in advocating a single payer health system, suddenly the public option is the, the middle position, is the centrist position. And again, this is the very position Obama was called a socialist for in 2009 is now the center of the debate, you know. And so Bernie has moved the Overton window on health care. And I think that that's recognized by a lot of people on the left. At the same time, I think that they kind of two, I think, critiques, broadly speaking, of the Democratic Party that they have. One is that they're still too tied to moneyed interests, that there's campaign finance and other things have made Democrats, when push comes to shove, they will embrace incrementalism because of their corporate donors or special interests that still have too much influence in the party. And two, just simply, you know, a lack of ideological purity. The Democratic Party is much more diverse in every sense of the word than the Republican Party. It's, it's geographically diverse, ethnically diverse. 
and that they're just they're not the votes, frankly, for Medicare for all, because some of those votes are like white guys from Western states or Southern states and Congress. And I think that 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 is a source of, of frustration to to some who on the left who see a Republican Party that is not at all shy about pushing for its most dogmatic positions. And this is the, the kind of tension that is playing out. And if Joe Biden is elected, by the way, this tension won't go away. It'll actually just grow. And to go back to the idea of a presidential election campaign, you have seen them from both sides of the the bubble, if it's fair to characterise it as that. Are there any moments from, say, the 2008 election campaign where you described it just a moment ago as a, as an outsider's campaign, almost, that sort of struck you as, as maybe a turning point from within the campaign where the energy, the confidence started to instill inside of you, the, the tangible effects of what you were campaigning for were, were starting to take root in the country? Mm, yeah, yeah. So there were a couple of moments. You know, one in the primary that won't will be a surprise to people, but in the primary, you know, Obama was the underdog and Hillary had huge leads. She was leading by twenty points. And Obama was campaigning against, you know, the Iraq war in large part at that time in two thousand seven. And then there was a debate in which they were asked about whether they'd engage in diplomacy with Iran. And Obama said, yes, I would. And then Hillary kind of jumped on this and said, oh, you're naive, you're irresponsible. And and what Obama did, he started hammering home. It wasn't necessarily just a critique of you know her foreign policy. It was like, this is just the Washington playbook that got us into Iraq. You know, like, well, we can't talk to other countries. Like, this is the same mindset that got us into Iraq. And some vein was tapped. Because what was interesting is I saw the Hillary campaign go from being on offense on this issue to suddenly being on defense. And I'll never forget, they started sending out mailers, you know, saying she's not really for war with Iran. She just doesn't think we should have diplomacy with Iran. And that's when you know she's playing on our frame. And it seems like a small moment, but it was actually a big moment to me because it was that sense of people just pissed off. You know, people like after the Iraq war, the sense that they've been lied to, the sense that Washington has a, a way of speaking about issues that doesn't make any sense, that is disconnected from the lives of ordinary people. And this obviously played on a whole bunch of other issues. But then this happened again, obviously, more acutely in the general election when the financial crisis took hold and John McCain said the fundamentals of the economy are strong. And Barack Obama went out and basically won the election that day. It, it wasn't that hard to say, you know, which economy is he talking about? Not the one that is lived by homeowners, not the one that is lived by people who are starting to get laid off. What both those moments had in common was the sense that, that Obama was amidst and at the vanguard of a building wave of outside energy that was going to wash over Washington. And Trump, you know, captured that. It's much smaller, by the way, uh, wave if you look at national public opinion. But but his was much more rooted in a different set of grievances, racial grievances in particular. But you do need to kind of get that sense of like in an outsider campaign, you have such a critique of the person you're running against that anything that comes up can be slotted into that critique. And for us against Hillary was and McCain, it was like these people are yesterday, you know, and and yesterday has failed you and Obama's tomorrow. And and that was it. And I think with Biden, it's a little different because he's not necessarily, you know, tomorrow, given he's been around for so long. It's, you all know intuitively, even some of you who voted for Trump, that this guy's just not up for it. And that because he's not up for it, 200,000 people are dead and the economy is falling apart. And 
I'm at least going to hire the right people and fight for the right things and be a decent guy, you know? And like the question is whether that is enough to harness the energy to overcome all the ways in which Trump is going to cheat. The idea of the candidate for tomorrow, when Obama and you and his team started at the White House, what was sort of transposing, I guess, the the promise that so many people felt in Obama when he was elected for the first time into a platform for government? Do you remember those days as being ones that sort of fizzed with excitement and possibility, or was there a sense of the daunting task ahead? Yeah, what was weird is, and so unusual, is he got elected at the height of the financial crisis. And so basically the entire platform you'd campaigned on kind of had to be junked because we're losing 700,000 jobs a month, the economy's literally in a free fall, and you could be entering a depression, you know. And suddenly, like, you can't pay for all the things you promised you would do. The immediate job is just to rest the collapse of the economy. So I remember being a very confusing period because on the one hand, you're so you're excited. We've won these huge majorities. We've broken this historical barrier with the black president. We're going to try to do all these things legislatively. We know we can get stuff passed because we control Congress. And the other end, you're like, the sky is falling. And the first two years of the Obama presidency were very, uh, on the one hand, you had the excitement of passing historic healthcare legislation and reforms to how the financial system works and repealing, you know, the ban on gays serving the military and passing equal pay legislation and investing $100 billion in clean energy. On the other hand, you're just trying to stop the economy from cratering and trying to figure out how far you can push in a new direction. And at the same time, the radicalism of the Republican Party the radicalization of the Republican Party is taking hold with the Tea Party movement building and this kind of weird mix of white, racially motivated anger and sense of grievance mixed with a lot of money being pumped in from Republican special interests. So it was a wild, weird time in, in retrospect. And Biden's going to have an even weirder one if he's elected because the, the bottom has fallen out just as profoundly. And when you talk about the radicalization of the, the Republican Party at that time and the rise of the Tea Party and the sort of potency at that moment of that kind of rhetoric, what kind of line do you draw from that moment through Obama's presidency to the Black Lives Matter protests, to the, the conversations, the demonstrations that are happening now? It's the story of American history. There's always been two Americas. You know, there's been the America that said all men are created equal, and then the America that enslaved people at the same time that we said that. And, and ever since, there's been a, a progressive America, an America that is constantly changing, evolving, extending more rights to more people, wrestling with the original sin of slavery and, and racism, versus an America that says, no, actually, America is just for some people, for white people, white Christian people principally and everyone else is just visiting. You know, most of my life, that conflict of stories was underneath the surface to some extent. I think the Cold War in many ways gave people a sense of common purpose. There were some things we agreed upon about who we are as a nation. But these divisions were already becoming more acute. But then I think the election of a black president is obviously a very triggering event to some people in this country, to some white people in this country, because it foreshadows the demographic changes that are happening generally that this is going to become a majority non-white country before the middle of the century. On top of the financial crisis, which, by the way, in America, as in Europe, kind of collapsed people's confidence that things were moving in a positive direction, that 
that institutions were competent, that the people in charge knew what they were doing, that even though some people were getting really rich, that somehow globalization and the changes in the economy were, were good for us. And so America was very ripe, as some places in Europe, as the UK was, for the right wing to come along and say, hey, you're angry. I can offer you the most traditional form of belonging there is, which is nationalism and particularly ethnic nationalism. And even though to some of us on the left, it makes no sense. Why do these kind of poor white people turn to parties that have agendas that exacerbate inequality and screw them? It does make sense to me because that's the most powerful form of belonging there is. And I'll get very quickly to the Black Lives Matter here because I know I gave a long wind up. I think there's a direct line from the Tea Party to Trump. And it's this sense of white grievance, white nationalism, that some of it is born in response to the financial crisis and the disruptions of globalization. Some of it is in reaction to demographic change. As the Republicans showed their cards and just became the clearest manifestation, I think, of a party of white supremacy, then the rest of us, including what became Black Lives Matter, similar, were like, well, we're not going to tiptoe around this either. And if you go back and look at the way that Obama would talk very gently about racism, it's very different from how BLM folks talk about it in the street. But I think that's a sense that the battle is joined in this country right now and that there's, you know, you're seeing the purest manifestations of what have always been the opposing poles of what America is. Is America a place that wrestles with its historical demons and improves for more people from more places who are more different colors? Or is America a place that is great when only a certain number of people run it who are white? And Ben, I'd like to turn to the podcast. Where did the idea for it come from? What motivated you to start the podcast and tell the stories in the ways you decided to tell them? Well, you know, the idea for me came, I travel a lot around the world, or at least I used to when you could, you know, even after the administration, because I would continue to go with Obama when he went overseas. And I started just talking to people more and more in countries, you know, some US diplomats I knew, but increasingly progressive activist types. And what I found in 17 and 18 is that Americans were kind of in our Trump drama and the rest of the world was like moving on. And, and they were basically like, you all have lost your minds and we can't afford to wait, you know, and wait for you to figure some of this stuff out. And so at first I was struck by the extent to which that was happening. Then I was struck by the extent to which the problems were the same everywhere. You know, it was nationalism. It was this new breed of authoritarianism and corruption. It was the spread of disinformation. And I felt a bit like someone in a dysfunctional family who has to walk outside of his own family to see what's happened at home. And that by seeing how these trends were playing out in Europe and Asia and other places, I actually understood what was happening in America better. So then I said, well, this could make a podcast where I basically take all these different global voices and try to tell the story of each of these trends that is reshaping the world in the absence of America being America. And then obviously figure out where's the hope, where can we find potential common ground for what to do about it. The first episode, you discuss the coronavirus pandemic and you draw parallels to a health crisis that happened during your watch in the Obama administration, the Ebola outbreak. And I thought it was really fascinating. You go through the nuts and bolts of how that was approached, of the kind of measures that that America should take at that time. Could you just walk us through some of those moments and your recollections from that time and, and what you feel as you've seen the response to the coronavirus pandemic in the US unfold? I wanted to start there because I also kind of wanted to make the case to people who are skeptical of American leadership and its utility, including in America, including particularly on the American left, 
that, that now here's why this matters. And, you know, the story is essentially you get an outbreak in a distant place, in this case, West Africa with Ebola in 2014. The world is always a bit slow to react to these things because it's not right in front of them. The World Health Organization actually was one of those pieces of the world that was very slow to react. They didn't want to declare this an emergency, in part because the countries of West Africa didn't want to declare it an emergency, in part because they knew that declaration would carry the stigma that would hurt their economy. And we were falling behind. And I described the briefing we got where it was essentially from the Centers for Disease Control that if this is not checked, there will be millions of people who will die. And that there was a curve that looked just like a hockey stick on this chart that looks a lot like the coronavirus curves we've come to live with. And Obama had to make a series of decisions to say, okay, we'll take this on and we'll essentially be the captain of the team internationally here. And we'll go in, in West Africa, we'll send the U.S. military, which had never been done before, send several thousand U.S. troops to build logistics hubs, healthcare centers, where we could get assistance in, but also hubs that we could go to other countries and say, okay, we've set up this massive infrastructure in West Africa. Can you send us doctors? Can you send us money? Can you send us nurses? Can you send us experts? And it led to a situation where, you know, the U.K. took responsibility for Sierra Leone. The U.S. took responsibility for Liberia. France took responsibility for Guinea. And then a whole dozens of countries sent 10,000 healthcare workers to West Africa, including Cubans and Chinese working alongside Americans, and stamped out Ebola. And two people in the United States died of Ebola. And, you know, I think something like 11,000, I don't want to get the number wrong, but something in the tens of thousands died total, which is a tragedy, of course, but a fraction of what could have happened. And you didn't have to draw the comparison to COVID because it was so obvious that nobody was coordinating response. Nationalist governments were at odds with each other. The WHO was pushed into the background by the U.S. instead of being helped by the U.S. And there was this kind of patchwork of response. And, you know, South Korea got it right and Brazil got it wrong. And that's not how the world should function in 2020. The world should should have habits of cooperation. And that the reality is, as strong as China is, if, if the U.S. is not the one trying to build collective action, it doesn't happen. I'm always interested, you know, when you were creating this podcast, did you have a sense of who you wanted to hear it? I suppose I'm thinking of, say, 2016 and this idea of the echo chamber where people were sort of trapped in these bubbles of just hearing things they thought they knew or kind of felt anyway. Do you think the idea of conversing across the lines, if that's a fair way to put it, is that happening more now or are people more entrenched? And, you know, what did you hope the podcast would contribute to that? So uh, to be totally honest, like I, I think we are more entrenched. And frankly, what I hope for the podcast, right, is what I found is that the far right in the world is very organized, that they share common sources of funding, they share common media platforms, they tell common stories. Like Viktor Orban, Vladimir Putin, and Donald Trump all have very similar messages. And that progressives and people on the center left just don't. And I was hoping that this podcast could be a place to bring together people in America and other parts of the world who are feeling a similar sense of unease and to see and hear themselves in the voices of the people that I, I have. And, I, and each podcast you know, starts with a kind of a story of one person, but then it, it adds up to a multiplicity of voices. So the principal thing I was hoping to accomplish with the podcast is create that sense that there is an international community of people who are just really worried and that they, they can feel a sense of solidarity when they hear a voice in the UK or Hungary or India if an American hears someone, it sounds just like them. Or an American hears how what Facebook did to Myanmar, 
in terms of propagating disinformation that led to violence, what's happening here might make more sense. So I wanted to thicken that sense of community. And then I wanted to speak to two audiences. I wanted people on the left in America who want to write off America playing a certain role in the world to appreciate that, it, hey, if we don't, then it's just going to be left to the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin. And hopefully, if anybody on the right in this country stumbles upon it, what they'll find is like, this is a deeply patriotic podcast that someone from a progressive perspective can believe America is capable of being a force for good in the world. And that cuts against kind of their cartoon character version of us. But I think that I'm not hopeful that, you know, frankly, it will reach a bunch of people on the right. And that's just the world we live in. And in my corner of that world, in my view, is more the mobilization of progressives than it is the dialogue across difference. That needs to be happening, but I'm probably not the best voice for that. I know that, you know, asking anyone to predict how the next few months will go, is probably a bit of a fool's game. But do you have any sense of what might unfold? Are you confident about what might happen come election day? I think, you know, unfortunately, you know, while I think it's more likely than not that Joe Biden will win. I think it's likely that if he does win, there'll be some scenario where it's not immediately clear, perhaps on election night because of mail-in voting. Trump says it's rigged and there's a few very uncomfortable days of figuring out how to legitimize those results. The one thing I am confident in predicting, unfortunately, is that no matter who wins, there will be huge upheaval in the United States. Because if Joe Biden wins, all these people that Trump has radicalized for four years are not going to go away. This is the biggest mistake that, that I think Democrats make. They're, the risk of violence in the streets, the risk of these kind of underground white nationalist groups kind of radicalizing further, conspiracy theorists like QAnon. I think that we're in for a very bumpy ride if Biden wins. And if Trump wins, I think that there could be an explosion of social unrest too. So unfortunately, I think either way, social unrest, questions around American social cohesion are going to be very pronounced uh, heading into next year. Well, Ben Rhodes, thank you very much for joining us on The Big Interview. No, thanks. It was great. Great talking to you. My thanks to Ben Rhodes. You can listen to Ben's new podcast, Missing America, wherever you find your podcasts. The Big Interview was produced and edited in London by Yolene Goffin and Steph Chungu. I'm Thomas Lewis. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>